0: You know, I ran across this story this past week that I was reminded of as I began preparing my sermon. The story of a couple, they had their first child and about 10 years later, the mother started noticing that the child didn't look like anybody in either one of their families and it really concerned her. And so she had a DNA test done on this child. And to her shock, it was not a match to either her or her husband. And so she just was really perplexed. And she mentioned this to her husband. And he said, you don't remember, do you? Whenever we were leaving the hospital with the baby, his diaper was dirty. And you told me to take him back inside and change him. And so I went back inside, and I swapped him for a clean one. Well, now, not a true story. It kind of shocks us, and uh, it also, we also find it funny. And the reason why is because we know that no father would ever look so uh, just uh, 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 unfeelingly Toward his child, like he could just swap it out for another one. There is an affinity, there is a connection between fathers and their children that runs deep. And fathers love their children, and they're not going to just look after anybody's children, but they are going to be careful to look out for their own. Over and over. Again, throughout Scripture, you'll notice that God is referred to as our Father. Now, that may seem strange to those who don't know him, but as believers, we know that the Lord desires to have a relationship with us and to take care of his children just as a good father would. The perfect illustration of God's fatherly love toward us was given to us by Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son. As I'm sure you recall, the son asks his father for his inheritance early. He leaves his family and takes off to indulge in all that the world has to offer. And the son was reckless and he squandered everything he had been given by his father. He hit rock bottom and he came home. And here's the good part. When the son comes home, the father doesn't turn him away or say, I told you so. Instead, when the father saw his son coming in the distance, he ran to him and he kissed him and he reinstated him fully in the family. At that point, everything that the father had belonged to the son again. His place in the family was restored. And this is the God, the Father's heart for us. He comes to us as we come to him. As you start out toward him, he's heading your way. In the passage we read in John this morning, Jesus makes it clear that the Holy Spirit connects us to Jesus and the Father. And Paul tells us through that connection that the love of God is poured out into our hearts. Notice what Jesus says. He says the Holy Spirit will guide you. He will speak. He will disclose. He will glorify. He will take what is Jesus and disclose it to us individually. And he tells them in this same section of the gospel of John, that he is with you now, but he will be in you. There are other places where we, uh, well, in Romans 5, I'll just go ahead and we we read that this morning. Uh, It says, therefore, by being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. You know, you shouldn't have to go through life worrying if you're okay with God, fretting about whether you're right with Him or not, because experientially, He sends His Holy Spirit into our lives, and that gives us a peace that passes all understanding. It gives us a peace to where we no longer fear death, gives us a peace to where we know somehow, no matter what's going on in our lives, somehow everything's going to be okay. His presence, his peace speaks to our hearts from deep within us. And then toward the end of uh, the passage in uh, in Romans, he says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Christian faith is not meant to be a hope-so sort of thing. The Christian faith is meant to be a no so kind of religion, not based just on legalities, but based on God himself through the presence of the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts and our lives in a way that is undeniable to us individually. In fact, Paul says it differently when he says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. This is in Romans 8:15, but you have received a spirit of adoption as children, by which we cry out, "Abba, Father." The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, all through Scripture, it tells us you don't have to just hope so. You should know so. He desires that for you. That's one of the things that your heavenly Father wants is for you to know that peace that passes all understanding that comes not from ourselves but from him. Now then in 2 Corinthians we see Paul saying that the Spirit was given to us as a pledge as a promise, as a token to remind us there is more to come. And and then again, in Romans 8:23, he says, "And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And then in Ephesians, the first chapter, he says, "In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Again, here's the Holy Spirit as a seal, as something that has come into our hearts and confirmed something and is keeping something present in our lives. Not just an idea, but his very presence dwelling within us. And then in 114, he says, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance again. The presence of the Holy Spirit, that love of God just shed abroad in our hearts, is a foretaste of what is waiting for us in heaven. Now, in Galatians 4, 6, it says, Because you are sons, or because you are children, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is just gives us that sense that we are in the presence of our Heavenly Father. He is with us no matter what we're going through. I can remember when I was a kid, started driving when I was 14, and I would drive cars that had tires so slick uh, I would wear use four ply tires because I knew I could get through two two layers of cloth and I'd still have two more if I didn't think about sliding on uh, on, uh, on 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 a wet. A pavement or anything because I just drove short distances around Cleveland, Texas. I didn't realize I should start watching out for how slick my tires were until one time I'd gone to see Sharon when she was in Houston and it started raining and that I was coming back. and uh, My little Ford Fairlane, I think it was a 1960 Ford Fairlane, as uh, I was on the East Texas Freeway, it was brand new back then. and. Uh, I decided I was going to move over to another lane. And as I did so, the next thing you know, I was driving sideways down the street. I wound up doing a donut and was heading toward pilings on the outside. And I was able to steer the car back around. And there was just a ditch, a shallow ditch, thank goodness. I plowed into it. And came to a stop and everything was okay except that i looked like i'd planted turf on top of my car but the thing is is that that's when i realized i need to start being careful about my tires and watching out for tires but whenever i would travel and i'd get out of town i always felt safer when i got within easy driving distance of home there was a peace that would come over me knowing that I was close enough that if I called my dad because I had car trouble, he was going to make arrangements or he was going to come and get me. That was a, There was always a peace in the area around. Went out about 12 miles out, any direction, I guess you might say. But uh, anyway, was, as long as I was in that area, I had a peace that I didn't have when I got outside of that area. God wants us to have that same sort of peace with him all the time, no matter what area or what place we're in. Now, J. Vernon Bagee knew what this assurance of the presence of God, the assurance of salvation meant. He says, I found this true the first time I went to the hospital for cancer surgery. I turned my face to the wall like old Hezekiah did and said, Lord, I've been in this hospital many times. I patted the hands of folk and had prayer with them and told them, oh, you trust the Lord. He'll see you through. Lord, I've told them that. But this is the first time for me. This is the first time I've been in here. Now I want to know whether it's true or not. I want you to make it real to me. If you are my father, I want to know it. And my friend, he made it real. At a time like that, the Spirit of God cries out, Abba, Father. It just wells up within you how sweet it is to trust him, to turn yourself over to him. Sometime, if you're in an airport, or maybe you have observed this, look at the difference between the passengers who have confirmed tickets and those who are on standby. The ones with confirmed tickets read newspapers and they chat with their friends or they sleep. The ones on standby hang around the ticket counter. They pace and fret and they fret and they pace. And the difference is what you could call the confidence factor. And the thing is, God wants that confidence factor in your life when it comes to your death. And when it comes to heaven, when it comes to what you're facing, if things look uncertain ahead, He wants that confidence factor to be in your heart through his love, shed abroad in your heart through the presence and the power and the peace of the Holy Spirit. You know, after John Wesley, the founder of our denomination, had been preaching for a while, someone said to him, Are you sure, Mr. Wesley, of your salvation? Well, he answered, Jesus Christ died for the whole world?' "'Yes, we all believe that. "'But are you sure that you are saved?' "'Wesley replied that he was sure "'that provision had been made for his salvation. "'But the person persisted. "'But are you sure, Wesley, that you are saved?' It went on. Well, it went like an arrow into his heart as he considered it. And he had no rest and no power until he had that question settled. And so he began a search. And that search ended on May 24th, 1738 at Aldersgate Chapel. He says of that moment, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. You know, there are many men and women who go on month after month, year after year, without power or peace because they don't know they're standing in Christ. They're not sure of their own footing for eternity. There was a woman who'd been diagnosed with a terminal illness and she'd been given three months to live. And so as she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and had him come to her house to discuss certain aspects of her final wishes. She told him which songs she wanted sung and what scripture she would like read and what outfit she wanted to be buried in. And the woman also requested to be buried with her favorite Bible. Everything was in order and the pastor was preparing to leave when the woman suddenly remembered something very important to her. There's one more thing, she said excitedly. What's that? The pastor replied. Now this is very important, the woman continued. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor stood looking at the woman, not knowing quite what to say. That surprises you, doesn't it? The woman asking. And he said, well, to be honest, I'm puzzled by the request. The woman explained, in all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. That was my favorite part because I knew that something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie, something wonderful, something with substance. And so I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand. And I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And then I want you to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. The pastor's eyes welled up with tears of joy as he hugged the woman goodbye. He knew this would be one of the last times that he would see her before she passed away and went to be with the Lord. But he also knew that the woman had a better grasp of heaven than he did. She knew that something better was coming. At the funeral, people were walking by the woman's casket, and they saw the pretty dress she was wearing and her favorite Bible and the fork placed in her right hand. Over and over, the pastor heard the question, what's with the fork? And over and over, he smiled. And during his message, the pastor told the people of the conversation he had had with this lady shortly before she died. He also told them about the fork and what it symbolized to her. The pastor told the people how he could not stop thinking about the fork And told them that they probably would not be able to stop thinking about it either. And he was right. So the next time you reach down for your fork, let it remind you, oh, so gently that the best is yet to come. She knew something better was coming. How about you? Do you know there's something better coming? The Lord wants you to. He's made arrangements so that you could. Now, you know, there's three different types of Christians in the world. There's secure and sure. There's insecure and sure. And then there's secure and sure. Now, the way that the Lord wants you to be is secure and sure. He wants you to know without a doubt that you are heaven bound. He wants you to know without a doubt that he is with you no matter what you go through in this life. This woman knew, and she faced death as a doorway, and I'm sure she faced life as an opportunity. To live is Christ, to die is gain for those who have come to know him and had his love and his peace shed abroad in your hearts or in their hearts now then the question that some people have is how can you really know some people that they've gone to church their whole lives and they know that they're christians don't know they can really know i i was attending evangelism explosion uh one time back in dallas some 40 years ago probably And uh, as I was attending, I wound up getting to hear something very special. We would uh, go out and go to assigned houses and share the gospel with those people. We'd just knock on the door and ask if we could come in and talk to them about Jesus. And many of them would say, yeah. And so we'd go in and we'd share the gospel with them. But this one uh, group, they wound up all the people that they were supposed to be going to see. None of them were home. And so they went to their trainer's house and shared among themselves. Just practice sharing the gospel on each other. And then when we all came back together and gave our reports, there was one sweet little pastor's wife from Ireland. And she stood up and she said, Nobody was home. I didn't know what was going on. We went and we shared. And I was thinking, what's this all about? I came over here to learn how to share the gospel uh, so that I could go back to Ireland and, and reach the lost. And as she heard the gospel being shared, she realized she had no security in her heart. She didn't know for sure herself. And so this lady that traveled from Ireland to Dallas to learn how to share the gospel with others received Jesus as her Lord and Savior that night. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. He had it all worked out. He brought her just to the right place. There's so many people like her who just know that they're Christian because they were brought up but they haven't really made that final connection. And that final connection comes whenever we make that very personal transaction with God. The first part of that transaction is you transfer your trust from what you have been doing to what Christ has done for you on his cross. One of the questions that's asked at the beginning Uh, of evangelism explosion whatever you're sharing the gospel is have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you could say for certain that if you were to die tonight you would go to heaven and that's what a lot of people say well i hope so and then you ask a clarifying question that question is suppose you were to die tonight and you stood before the lord and he said so and so and he called you by name. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? Would it be like a lot of people say, well, I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, I've never killed anybody. Uh, I, uh, I even try to follow the speed limit as much as I can. Uh, you know, they just go through all this stuff. I've tried to be a good person. And the thing is, if that's your answer... I have good news for you. Heaven's a free gift. It's not deserved and it's not earned. It says in scripture in Galatians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the most important thing is to quit trying to work your way into heaven and realize that you cannot. You cannot. Next thing is accept Jesus as your Savior. Open the door of your heart and invite him in. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into them. And then after that, you receive him as Lord. You give him the driver's seat. And this is where the transaction really happens. When you give him the driver's seat, the controls of your life, and quit just driving him around in the back seat of your life, you turn control over to him. And then the last thing is repent. Be willing to turn from anything that's not pleasing to him, and he'll reveal his will to you. As you grow in your relationship with him. We used to go out to John Osteen's church. Joel Osteen's daddy. Uh, We would go out there. And he always closed with the same invitation. He would say. Now how many of you here tonight. I want to see your hands. And I'm not asking you to hold up your hands right now. This is what he would say. I want to see your hands. You say Pastor Osteen. I know I'm going to heaven. I know if I died tonight, I would go straight to heaven. I'm living right. I'm doing right. I am right with God. And I know it. Let's see your hands. And he'd say, God bless you. And then he said, now, there are some of you here that you might be, you might say to me, Pastor Osteen, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I want to know. But I'll tell you, I'm not living right. I'm not doing right. And I have no peace in my heart. And at that point, he would give them the opportunity to raise their hands. And then he would ask all those that raised their hands to join with him in a prayer. Now then, I would like for us to pray that prayer right now. I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but I am asking you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and with every head bowed and every eye closed, please, so that you won't see your neighbor next to you. I just want to ask you this. If you are sure that you'd go to heaven if you died tonight, would you just lift your head up and lift your eyes toward me? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now then, if there are there any of you here that you're not sure, and you would like to be sure. Would you lift your eyes toward me? Okay, okay. Thank you. Now, I would just ask all of you to pray this prayer together with me. This is how you ask the Lord to come into your life. Let's pray. Just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gift of eternal life. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and don't deserve eternal life. No, sinner, deserve eternal life. But you loved, so you loved me so much. You died and rose from the grave, you died from the grave. To, purchase to purchase a place in heaven for me. I now trust in you alone for eternal life. I now trust and I repent of my sin. Please take control as Lord of my life. life. Thank Thank you so much. Now, if you prayed that prayer and you really had the sincere, sincere desire in your heart to make that transaction with him, this is what Jesus promises. To those who believe in him, he says, I say unto you, he that believes in me has everlasting life. You see, it's not trusting in your good works will never be good enough. It's resting in him, resting in what he did. It's like I can believe this chair will hold me up. I can tell you this chair will hold me up. But am I showing you that I believe that chair? Am I really trusting that chair? No, I'm standing here by it. That's head knowledge. I know. I've seen other people sit in it. Now then, how about now? Am I I trusting in this chair? That's the difference between saving faith and head knowledge. Is finally just accepting Jesus paid the price. You don't have to. It's done. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.